Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm super excited for the episode. (laughs) But this time, it's uh, not because it's a story that I particularly enjoy, but because (laughs) the subject is super fascinating. And the subject is William Shakespeare. So we're going to be looking at William Shakespeare, specifically the Taming of the Shrew today. I want to give a little shout out to one of our listeners who recommended a book to me. It was like it was like six months ago, maybe longer than that. This listener's name is Meg and she is awesome. And she recommended Shakespeare and the Folktale, an anthology of stories because she was like, oh, I'm really into Shakespeare and you're really into Folk tales. So I picked up this book because of the Shakespeare, but you might be interested in it because of the folk tales inside of it. And so, you know, of course, I was like, yes, I will definitely check this <laughs> book out. <laughs> and I did. And I was looking through it because I was like, oh, you know, it'd be a really interesting podcast episode would be Shakespeare, Thousand One Nights, some kind of like merger there. Mm -hmm. And the play by William Shakespeare that was supposed to have a Thousand and One Nights tie into it, according to this book, was The Taming of the Shrew. So I thought that was really interesting. And we'll talk a little bit in a second about why that (laughs) didn't actually end up, you know, working out or being like a thing. But what it did end up making me do is a bunch of research. (laughs) Into the Taming of the Shrew and getting really excited about it from a a folktale perspective. And so that is what you all are going to be enjoying today. So as I was doing some research for the episode, I went to a bookstore, as one does. (laughs) (laughs) And when I asked the person kind of where they're like Shakespeare section was the woman was like Shakespeare ugh he's trash which <laughs> that is a great way to sell books let me tell <laughs> <laughs> oh man I was just like it was funny just like imagining this woman if like you just go up to her with like any kind of like interest and she's like, oh, that's trash. <laughs> but what was interesting is, you know, when she voiced her opinion of why it was trash and like why people shouldn't care about it, you know, she's entitled to her opinion, of course. Yeah. But kind of the thing that came up for me, you know, is like, why do people study Shakespeare? What is the most important thing about reading Shakespeare? Even for people who aren't that into it, don't like it that much. Uh-huh. And the thing that it keeps coming down to is the fact that Shakespeare has created a large body of work that often gets referenced back to 
by other pieces of work. Absolutely. It is so ingrained culturally, uh, especially like Western literature. Yeah. That it's just something that, you know, you have to have at least some working knowledge of some of the plays. And so if you're a person who is listening, thinking to yourself, oh, Shakespeare, so pretentious, hoity-toity, <laughs> I don't like it, it makes no sense, all that stuff. Like, I hear you. And so does this lady in this bookstore. <laughs> She's right there with you. But what's important about kind of like looking at it and examining it is the just cultural influence that it had on so many pieces of writing. And when you're looking at Shakespeare through that lens, it's interesting then to talk about how a lot of this stuff that people don't like about Shakespeare, watching it or reading it, is that most of the references that he makes inside of the plays are references that go over our heads today because they're 400 year old mm. references. Right. And sometimes he's referencing stories that you don't have like a working knowledge of. So, you know, he says he'll put in like a one liner that in his day, that line would have killed because <laughs> it was like, oh, man, so funny. What a witty comment on our political situation. But today we listen to it and it's. It's nothing, it, you know, it goes completely like, yeah. over your head. So most of the works of William Shakespeare are based off of either literature of the time, like documented stories, histories, or like local folk tales. And he will, he, and he would take them and kind of expand on the characters and create kind of broader stories uh, to turn them into fascinating plays. And people who were in the audience of his day were usually familiar with most of these tales. And him knowing that, he would use that to sometimes subvert expectations. So Shakespeare knew that people in his audience had a pretty good working knowledge of the stories that he was kind of remixing or make like fleshing out the characters. Uh -huh. And so he would use that to his advantage, which makes it interesting now when people are watching Shakespearean plays, because we're missing a lot of that as an audience. We're not going in with the same working knowledge of stuff that the audience that it was written for went into the play with. And so it's actually fascinating to like go back and know the history of like some of these stories before going in to like watch the play and see what he did and worked on and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, that's asking a lot of like an audience, but kind of I, I would, like when I was thinking about it, one of the things that I thought about was the musical Hamilton. Uh -huh. Shakespeare would basically do the exact same thing where he would look at a historical character 
And like the evidence that we had about that person or that historical event. Mm -hmm. And he would kind of go in and he would make that character somebody that, you know, was a little more like a flesh and blood human being instead of just like a person in the history books. Right. And he would look at different episodes like in their life that either were particularly well documented or were just kind of famous. And he would kind of fill in the gaps with plot and story and make the characters just really like fascinating, rich, vibrant characters. Yeah. Just like Lin-Manuel Miranda did with Hamilton. He had read a book about Hamilton Thought that this guy was really interesting. Didn't, you know, there's no way of knowing a full person or all of their intents and stuff. And so some of that, you know, gets filled in by like an artist. That's what happened, you know, with Hamilton. And then we get the amazing musical, very moving genius work. Because much like in Hamilton, you know, what that play did was it told us what was happening, what happened, you know, then to a historical person, but it also was drawing on emotions that people still feel today or like political problems that like we have, like it did a lot of work with that. And that's exactly what like William Shakespeare was doing (laughs) with a lot of his work as well. Uh And so it's really fascinating to kind of go in and look at like source material for the plays that William Shakespeare wrote, because then you can get kind of like a richer understanding of the message that William Shakespeare was trying to get across. Yeah. But The Taming of the Shrew contains one of the bigger mysteries when it comes to like plays uh, written by William Shakespeare. And... The mystery that it contains is, are we missing the end of the play? <laughs> there, I didn't know that this was a thing. Scholars don't know whether or not the ending that we have for Taming of the Shrew is the correct ending or if there is a chunk that is missing off of the end. Wow. And it all comes down to... A frame story. So William Shakespeare, really famous for plays within plays. So he did it in Hamlet, where the play was the thing which would catch the conscience of the king, where Hamlet had players stage a play within a play that was supposed to kind of, you know, prick the conscience of the king. And... So the play within a play is a very tiny part of Hamlet. And then in A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, you have these characters who are going to put on a play and they go to practice in the woods and they're part of the mayhem that ensues. And then at the end, you get a very awkward and poorly produced play within a play that is pretty like hilarious to watch. And people say that that was like (laughs) William Shakespeare's commentary on some of his competitors in the theater world, which I, I think is, I'm like, that's hilarious. Uh actually. So usually the plays within the plays are very just small part, but in the taming of the shrew, 
you have this really interesting thing where the story starts off with the tail type is called Lord for a day. And it's there's a like a drunk guy side of the road, a passing Lord sees him and he's like, do you know, it'd be a funny trick if I put this passed out drunk man into my carriage, take him to a hotel, dress him up in my clothes. And then we all pretend that he's really a Lord after they get him in this inn and he wakes up and they're pretending that he's a Lord. These actors come to that same local inn. And the real Lord asks them if they'll put on a play for the fake Lord. And then the play that they perform is The Taming of the Shrew. Mm -hmm. But then you get all the way to the end of The Taming of the Shrew. And that drunk guy never shows back up. They never close out the narrative. And so, you know, scholars have (laughs) wondered for a very long time, are we missing the end of that story? And so why this is interesting to look at and why we're going to be talking about it is because William Shakespeare took two different Mm -hmm. tale types that existed in his time, Lord for a Day, and what now scholars named this tale type Taming of the Shrew, because the most famous example of it is the play the Taming of the Shrew, even though the tail type right. pre-exists. Yes. Wow. But yeah, basically William Shakespeare took those two tail types and he stuck them together. But what's interesting is that we never get the end of the story. Uh, and we'll talk about that probably at the end of the episode. It makes me think like maybe that the Lord for a day tail type will be kind of instructive as to what the end probably maybe would have been if we still had yeah. it. That's what I'm I mean, guessing. Because that's scholars are kind of torn between either William Shakespeare knew that everybody in his audience already knew what the end was. And so yeah. he was using the Lord as a device or the the fake Lord, as a device to instruct the audience that what they were about to see in The Taming of the Shrew was a fantasy and not something that was true to life. Right. So scholars debate whether he purposefully left off the end or whether it was lost to time. And so it is interesting because if we know through the tale type how the end was supposed to go, therefore what the audience was expecting, then we can ask that those questions of does it change how we look at the play? Right. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Then I guess we'll do this story. So we're going to look at the first tale type inside of The Taming of the True. The story of Lord for a day. So it was really interesting to me because I was drawn to this play because I was hoping to hear more about this possible tie-in to uh, The Thousand One Nights. And there is a story that is a Lord for a day tale type included in a collection of 
The Thousand One Nights, translated by John Payne. But he had gotten the tale from a collection of tales written by Antoine Galan. And of course, yes. And currently, it's considered, you know, one of those tales that the original in Syrian has not been discovered yet. Meaning the dude just made it up. Yeah, so it's actually probably an orphan tale, um, especially when you consider as evidence that this was, it was based off of a tale type that was found circulating in Europe at the time that Antoine Galan wrote his tales. That guy. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's again, it's one of those stories where I'm like, oh, this is from a thousand one nights. And then, you know, you do a little digging and it's like, okay. So turns out, no, probably not. So it's interesting because yes, it is the same Lord for a day tale, like in the taming of the shrew. So, but there was a ballad that was circulating in England and it was called the Frolicsome Duke, or The Tinker's Good Fortune, is actually pretty short. And it basically goes along the same lines of the story that I just told you of The Taming of the Shrew, where a duke, instead of a lord, uh, a duke is, you know, traveling down a road in his carriage and he sees a person who is a tinker, which is a tinsmith, uh, lying drunk, passed out on the side of the road. And he kind of thinks to himself, you know what would be funny? If we take him back with us and we dress him up in my clothes and then we trick him into thinking that he's like the Lord, or in this case, that he's a Duke and that he's like forgotten himself or whatever. He hit his head amnesia, got too drunk, whatever the case is, we'll just trick him. Mm -hmm. So they take this drunk man, throw him over the side of a horse. They take him to a local inn and they get him set up in a really nice bed. What's funny is it's like nice bed by like the 1600s standards. (laughs) I'm like, no, I don't know about this. (laughs) Well, it's like on a bed of soft down. Like a lord of renown, they did lay him to sleep, the drink out of his crown. So once, yeah, the drink, the alcohol left his head, he woke up in this bed of down and this uh, inn. And at first he's, you know, super confused and not quite sure what's going on. But everybody there is in on the joke. And so they're all like, oh, Duke, you hurt your head. You, you know, don't know what's going on. And he's like, wait, what's going on? I don't understand what's happening. And they're like, oh, don't you know? You're the Duke and you get to do whatever you want. And he was like, oh, what? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, you guys must be right. (laughs) (laughs) And so he spends the day just kind of like enjoying himself with like different people coming to like pay court to him. And he has like a, a big, wonderful dinner and full of like rich and delicious foods. 
And he's just like feasting and having a great time. And they start bringing out all this like really nice, fancy wine. So he starts drinking and he gets drunker than he's ever been before in his life. <laughs> because there's all this super nice stuff that he's like, yeah. oh, man, I want take- to have some of that. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to take full advantage of this. So he gets completely knocked down drunk again. And they strip him out of his clothes, put him back into his regular clothes, and then they dump him on the side of the road, (laughs) which is not the end of the story because that'd be very sad. (laughs) But he wakes up and he's kind of like, oh, no, what happened? I had like all this wonderful stuff like in front of me. Like, have I did I go crazy? Was I dreaming then? Am I awake now or am I dreaming now, but I was awake then? You know, (laughs) just very much confused and bewildered. And then the Duke comes riding past and he's like, oh, it was lots of fun to hang out with you the other day. And, you know, thanks for being a good sport while we played this joke on you. And now I want you to come and live at court with me and you can bring your wife and she'll be elevated in status because she'll be Uh the lady in waiting for, you know, my duchess. And he's like, oh, a tinker has never had greater fortune. And they (laughs) all live happily and drunkly ever after. (laughs) Wow. So that is the end of the ballad that contains that story uh lord for a day yeah and if people are interested in looking up the story that was translated by john payne that's like similar but has like a distinctly you know middle eastern flair to it yeah um the story is called asleep and awake Ooh, that's a great title that is Because, yeah, he doesn't know whether he's asleep now or awake. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And it has a similar happy ending, too, of once they kind of play this joke on this person. Dude, in that story, they use some kind of like a narcotic that they pour into his drink. You know, like they poison his drink. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, And he passes out. So he's, he's not like a... A a drunk drunk that they find on the side of the road. Like they just are like, hey, let's straight up drug this guy and then take him on crazy adventures. (laughs) Yes. I think I saw that movie. Yeah, I don't I don't recommend that anybody (laughs) drug anybody and take them on quote unquote crazy adventures. No. So. Our lawyers would like us to say that we as a podcast do not endorse (laughs) this type of behavior. So now the next half of. The Taming of the Shrew, the play contains the tail type, which is, I stated before, called The Taming of the Shrew. And the story that we're about to hear is called The Most Obedient Wife. And I just want to state, for the record, that I hate it. And so I'm going to make yeah. Jeff say it that way. Everyone will hear the horrible things coming out of a man's mouth. <laughs> What do you mean? This is a very progressive feminist story. What? Yeah, just wait. You'll hear. (laughs) Okay. The Most Obedient Wife. Long ago, there was a rich farmer who had three daughters. All were grown up, 
100% marriageable, and you guessed it, very attractive. Yeah, yo. But the oldest of them was the best looking. She was the smartest, but also she was, quote, quarrelsome and obstinate. And so there was never any peace in the house. She was always causing trouble. She was constantly contradicting her father. And her father, I might add, was a kind, peace-loving man. And she was always fighting with her sisters, even though they were good-natured girls. And so there were many, quote, wooers that came to the farm. And I just love that. Uh, <laughs> wooers. <laughs> These potential suitors that came to the farm. And they, of course, wanted to go straight for the best-looking, smartest daughter. And the farmer was like, hey, that's totally fine. I definitely don't have any objections to having you as a son-in-law, but I want to let you know that this daughter is kind of the worst, and she can be violent, she's strong-minded. It's hard to have a peaceful life with her, so maybe you know, you might want to go with someone else, but if you do end up marrying her, I'll give you 300 pounds more in her dowry than the other sisters. And, of course, this guy that came was like, hmm. He was, like, trying to weigh the pros and cons. I was like, 300 pounds is kind of a lot. It's a good deal. But then he's like, you know what? I'll just go for the second oldest daughter. Like, she's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll have her as my wife instead. <laughs> she's And so fine. I was like, great. So the two became man and wife. They were married. And they went off to live happily together. Then there came along yet another wooer. And this guy was from another part of the country. And he comes and he's like, dang, this eldest daughter, she's pretty good looking. Like, oh, man, she's got some brains, too. I think, you know what? She might be the one for me. And so the father cautions him as he did the first. And he's like, hey, like, listen, I have no objections to you as a person, but you might want to rethink marrying this particular daughter. If you do, I'll sweeten the pot and throw in 300 extra pounds. But maybe you might want to go with the younger sister instead. And so the second wooer was like, oh, yeah, you know what? That sounds great. I'll go with the youngest daughter. And so they, too, were soon married and went off to live happily and peacefully together. So now the eldest daughter was alone with her father. <laughs> and she did not treat him any better than before, probably because all these guys were coming trying to marry her. And he was like, hold up. Wait, let me tell you something about her first. <laughs> and she like ended up getting all these guys like chased off. Yeah, by her dad being like. Um, yeah, you don't want her. She's, like, really opinionated and mouthy. <laughs> it is one of those things, too, that's interesting. It's like, at no point does it say who any of the daughters were actually interested in marrying or anything. You know, obviously, different time, different place, yeah. different circumstances. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, like, what if she was like, I didn't want to marry those guys anyway. Yeah, it, it was like, it was very transactional and also very, like, if you marry this one. I'll throw in some extra money. Yeah. And you know what? That's like kind of how stuff was back in the day. Yeah. We live in different times. Yeah. But yeah. So it's like, but, but we don't care. We don't care what they have to feel about it. It's just about <laughs> the dowry or not wanting to marry someone that their dad says is like can, cantankerous or whatever. Yeah. So again, the daughter alone with the father, she's actually getting even more upset than she was before because her two sisters like went off and got married and they're living happily. And those guys came and they wanted to marry her. So she is 
as obstinate and quarrelsome ever, and actually she's even more violent and bad-tempered and just like increasingly so, day by day. And so finally, another wooer came. And he wasn't from their district, not from their country, but he was from some super far off land. And he went to the farmer and he's like, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And the father's like, you know what? I don't want to marry her to anyone at all because, you know, I thought she was bad before, but now she's like really bad. And I don't think that there's any human being on this planet that could live peacefully with her. And I don't want to be the cause of such unhappiness to you, my good sir, from a distant land. (laughs) (laughs) Like looking out for this stranger more so than his own daughter. But this guy was like, nope, whatever her faults, I want to marry her. And so the father took a little convincing, but finally he consented. He let the daughter marry this young man. And he was like, well, this guy, I tried to stop him. This guy did it, you know, washed his hands, the whole thing, happy to be rid of her. It's like, I told this guy the whole truth and he still wanted to marry her. So it's like, my conscience is clear. This is all on him. And so accordingly, this young man, wooer, as he was referred to before, lived up to that title and wooed the girl. And she actually didn't hesitate for very long before she was like, okay, yeah, I'll marry this guy and accepted the offer because she was like tired of sitting at home being despised by her own father. And so this guy, the suitor said they didn't really have any time to stay then, but he'll, he's going to return to his home country and then he'll come back as soon as we have a wedding day. And he's like, I'm not going to come to the farm. Like just meet me at the church on the wedding day. Okay, so the wedding day comes, the farmer takes his daughter to the church, and there's a bunch of guests all there, the bride's sisters and her brothers-in-law were there, and all the village came in their Sunday best to watch this wedding. And the bridegroom, now, upgraded from wooer, because girl done been wooed already, is there as well, but he's just in ordinary traveling clothes. He's not, like, dressed up at all. And so this girl, all dressed up, And this dude, head to the altar, they're married. As soon as the ceremony's over, he takes her by the hand and leads her out of the church. And he sends a message to the father-in-law saying like, hey, we're not going to the feast. We don't have any time to waste. We're just heading back to my lands. And this guy, he hadn't come up in a coach, as you would expect at a wedding, but he traveled just on horseback. But it was a very nice gray horse, had just kind of an ordinary saddle, and there was a couple of pistols in the saddlebags. Don't know why that's worth mentioning, but it is. Wank. <laughs> never introduce never introduce a firearm into a play unless somebody's about to use it. That's Chekhov's gun for you. So, strangely, this guy, he didn't have any friends or family come with him like to the wedding or travel back with him. He only had a dog that was laying next to the house during the ceremony. So a good boy. So this guy lifts his bride up onto the horse as if she had been light as a feather because he's super strong. He jumps into the saddle, puts the spurs to the horse, and they ride off with the dog trotting behind them. And the marriage party is standing at the church door looking after them, and they're just like, what did we just see? That was weird. That was not what we expected. So they go back to the house. They have the marriage feast without the presence of the bride and groom. 
And the bride wasn't too happy about this. She was like, they're throwing a whole big feast for us. Like I always imagined my wedding day would be a little different than this. Not just riding off on a horse after thing. You know, I wanted the whole party and all that. But she didn't want to fight with her now husband. So she held her tongue. But, you know, as they got along the road, she finally said something to him because he wasn't really talking to her. And she was like, oh, you know, this is a really nice horse that we're riding now. And he's like, yes, it is. I have seven other horses at home, but this one's my favorite. It's the most valuable. It's the one I like the absolute most. She's like, oh, yeah, one, I noticed that you have a, a really beautiful dog. And he's like, yes, this is a jewel of the dog. It cost me so much money. It's the best dog. Such a good boy. Love it. So it's a good boy. <laughs> and so they're going along and they come to a forest and... The bridegroom jumps from the horse and he cuts off a thin switch from a willow tree. And he took the switch and he wound it three times around his own finger, tied it with a thread, and then gave it to his wife saying, this is my wedding gift to you. Take good care of it and always wear it. And she's like, okay. Thinking it's kind of weird, but she puts it in her pocket. (laughs) And I guess not always wear it. He just says to carry it with you always. And the fact that she puts it in her pocket makes me think that she's not going to wear it always. <laughs> yeah. So she thinks this is a little strange. She puts it in her pocket and they rode off again. As they're going along. Does, she, does it say pocket? It says pocket. All right, ladies. Proof positive that women once had pockets in their dresses. <laughs> her dress has pockets, ladies. <laughs> So they're riding on a little bit and the bride drops her glove. And so her husband says to the dog, he's like, hey, pick it up, Fido, which is like, what more stereotypical Yeah, I thought that that was interesting that that the dog's name was Fido, too, because I was like, how long has that been a a stereotype dog name? (laughs) Forever, apparently. And being told to pick up the glove, the dog did nothing, just left it there lying on the ground. So the master drew a pistol from his holster and he shot the dog and left it lying dead along the road. And his wife is just absolutely horrified by this. She's like, how could you be so cruel to this poor dog? And all that the guy could respond was, I never say anything twice. And they keep going on in silence. I'd be scared to say anything too at that (laughs) point. He was just talking about how much he loved this dog and it didn't pick up a glove. So he's like, Boom, ruthlessly just. Yeah, I also would be sitting pretty quietly the rest of that ride. (laughs) Yeah, red flag. So, after (laughs) a a little bit more time, they come to a. (laughs) It's a deal breaker, ladies. It's a deal breaker, ladies. So, after a bit more riding, they come to a stream that they had to cross. And there was no bridge. So, the man says to the horses, like, hey, I do not want a single drop to mess up my bride's dress. But by the time they had crossed, I mean, the horse is going across a river. The dress was super soaked. Guy takes the bride off of the horse, takes out the other pistol, and boom, shoots the horse. It falls down dead on the ground. And the bride, once again horrified, is like, oh my gosh, the poor horse. And she's like, you know, you love this horse. You were just talking about how amazing it was. And he's like, yeah but I never say a thing twice and they just go on. And so he took the saddle, the bridle and the cover from the horse. He took the bridle and the cover for himself, but he gave the saddle to his wife and is like, you can carry that. We'll be home in a minute. 
And so there they go walking on in silence, just carrying all this stuff. So the bride, you know, quickly put the saddle on her back and followed after him because she didn't want him to have to say anything twice because she knows what happens if someone makes him say something twice. So they soon arrive at his home. It's a very nice farm. There's servants all over. They come in. He introduces his wife to them. He's like, this is your, my wife and your mistress. Whatever she tells you, you're to do as if I had told you myself. And then he leads his wife indoors, shows her everything, the living rooms, the bedrooms, all of that. And he's like, I want you to look after everything indoors and all attend to all the stuff outdoors. That's going to be the division of labor in our marriage. And so they sat down to supper and then went to bed. So time passes, days, weeks, months. The young wife, not wanting to get shot, (laughs) does exactly what her husband had said, takes care of all the household matters. And her husband was out there working on the farm. And they didn't ever have like an angry word go between them. They were just super cordial and super nice to each other. The servants who had become accustomed to obeying their master implicitly mm. uh, <laughs> wonder yeah. why. The threat of violence, that's why. They obeyed the mistress likewise. They, he said to them, like, hey, like, obey her like you would obey me, thinking like, hey, this threat extends to you not obeying her as well. It never says that he threatened them, but uh, what am I supposed to think? Yeah, I, I'm under the assumption as well that he probably, <laughs> this is his personality and everybody's aware that this is how he is. Yeah. So six months have passed at this time and there was never a situation where he had to tell his wife the same thing twice. And he was also always kind to her, always polite to her. And in return, she was, you know, gentle and then obedient to him. So one day her husband asked her, he's like, hey, how would you like to go visit your family? And she's like, oh, yes, I would love that if it would be convenient. I mean, I don't want to do anything to inconvenience you. He's like, oh, yeah, no, it would be quite convenient. You've never mentioned it before, but I thought we'd just go and do it. You know, it'll be a nice little trip. So he tells her to get ready and he goes and gets the horses all set up, attached to the carriage because they're actually going by carriage this time instead of just on horseback. So when he drives the carriage up, he's like, are you ready, dear? And she's like, oh, yes. And she comes running out, gets in the carriage. You know, she hadn't quite finished dressing, but she didn't want to make him wait. So she has some other things in her hands and she starts, you know, finishing getting dressed while they're riding along in the carriage. And when they'd driven almost half the way to her house, they saw this big flock of ravens flying across the road. And the husband's like, oh, what beautiful white birds. And the wife's like, um, no dear they're black and the husband's like ah well looks like it's gonna rain and he turns the horses around and drives home again and so she understands pretty much what has happened she was like oh that's the first time that i've like contradicted him he is not happy and so he is turning us and taking us back home not giving me what i want to go visit my family and even though he is presumably upset. Like they actually conversed in a quite friendly fashion all the way home. And the husband puts the horses in the stable and wouldn't you know it, it didn't rain after Mm. all. So another month goes by and he's like, I think it's going to be a great day today. What do we say? We make another trip out to try to visit your family. And so she definitely wanted to do that. So she got dressed even faster than last time so that when he drove up and said to get in, she was already completely ready. She rushed into the carriage beside him and they had driven on and they went more than half the distance this time. 
when they came across a large flock of sheep and lambs. And the husband says, oh, what a fine pack of wolves that is. And the wife's like, oh, I think you mean sheep, dear. And he's like, oh, you know what? It looks like it's going to rain before evening. Turns the thing back around, takes him back home. So again, on the way back, they have quite a friendly conversation as if nothing is wrong, but it didn't rain. So another month goes by. And the husband, one morning, comes like, you know what? Let's try to visit your family. It looks like it's going to be a great day today. No bad weather. What do you say we try? And so she's like, okay, yes. Yeah. So she gets she gets dressed real fast. She gets in the carriage. They ride off. And on the way, they saw a big flock of swans flying over their heads. And the husband's like, oh, what a great flock of storks that is. And so his wife's like, oh, yes, dear. It's such a lovely little flock of storks. Not contradicting him because she's learned her lesson and so there was no change in the weather that day nor did her husband predict a change in the weather that was not to come so they got all the way to her father's house and so the father's super excited he sees that they're there they don't haven't come to visit since they got married he calls for the other two daughters and their husbands to come and they're gonna just have like a feast together so when they're all there the three married sisters went into the kitchen so they could kind of talk a little more freely amongst themselves dish on what it's like being married and the uh, younger sisters in particular were excited to see their older sister because they hadn't seen her for a long time since she had been you know kind of trapped in her house with a psycho (laughs) yeah and so they're all preparing dinner and they're like pulling out all the stops going big gonna have a huge feast meanwhile the brothers-in-law which is interesting because i would say brother-in-laws but brothers-in-law makes more sense The three brothers-in-law are sitting with the father-in-law in in the other room, and they had a lot to talk about. And so the old farmer's like, hey, you know what? This is the first time we've gotten all you boys together under one roof. I want to ask, you know, plainly, how are you all? Are you all happy with your wives? You know, how how are my daughters as wives? And the husbands who'd married the two younger daughters, the good-tempered sisters, they're like, oh, man, you know, it's great. We love it. We're so satisfied. And then the father-in-law turns kind of nervously to the guy that had married the eldest daughter. And he's like, but how about you? How do you get along with your wife? Probably expecting the worst. And he's like, there's nobody that's married a better wife than I have. And the father, I'm thinking probably a little bit skeptical (laughs) of that claim is like, well, I'd like to see which one of you has the most obedient wife. This sounds like a great little competition to have. Yeah. What a great dad. He really wins so many awards in my book. She said sarcastically. (laughs) Yeah. So the father-in-law, he gets a big silver jug and he fills it all the way up with gold and silver. And I'm like, dang. I mean, he said he was a farmer. It did say he was a rich farmer, but that's a super rich farmer. So he puts this silver dish this silver jug full of gold and silver coins right in the middle of the table between these three men. He says, this is going to belong to whichever one of you has the most obedient wife. And so they're like, boom, let's put this to the test. So the husband who married the youngest sister goes to the kitchen door and calls into her. Will you come here for a moment, Gerda, please quickly as possible. And so she replies, all right, I'm coming. But it took a little time for her to get there because she was, in the middle of talking to her sister, she wanted to finish whatever story she was saying. And so she comes out and she's like, oh, what did you want with me, husband? My husband, dear. 
And the husband made some excuse and she went back. Was his wife the most obedient? Who knows? She was the most obedient so far. So she's kind of setting the bar that you either are going to, you know, surpass or fall short of. So now it was the turn of the man who'd married the middle sister. And so he goes to the door. He calls in, please come here a moment, Margaret. And so she answers, okay, I'm coming right away. But it was a good while before she was able to make it there too because she had something in her hands. She had to go find a place to put it down. Then she could come out. Seems like she probably got out there a little faster than the other sister. Um, And the husband invented some excuse as to why he wanted to call her out there. And she goes back into the kitchen. Then the third husband went to the kitchen door. This is the one that had married the supposedly cantankerous, evil, mean, and spiteful sister. And he calls out to her, Christine! And she says, yes. And she's standing there with a large dish of food in her hand. And she quickly turns to her sister. She's like, here, take this from me. And her sister's just like, uh, what? And so they don't move a muscle to try to take it. So she just drops the dish right onto the floor and rushes out of the room. And the sister's just like, what the heck is going on? And she runs out and she's like, oh, what is it that you want, dear? And he's like, oh, I just wanted to see you. But since you're here, you may as well take that jug sitting there on the table. It's yours as well as all that's in it, which is the gold and silver silver coins. (laughs) It's like, while you're standing there, why don't you go ahead and show your father and your brothers-in-law the marriage gift that I gave you on our wedding day? And she's like, oh, yes, dear, here it is. I carry it with me always, just like you asked. And she pulls the willow ring from her bosom where she had kept it ever since. Which I deeply appreciate. As a woman who also uses that as a pocket... (laughs) so the husband takes the willow ring hands it to his father-in-law and says hey go ahead try to undo that ring try to pull it straight and the father-in-law is like um no like that's impossible i can't do it without breaking it he's like well now you see if i had not bent the twig when it was green i could not have made it into that shape And after that, they sat down to a merry meal, and the husband of the oldest sister returned home with her, and there they lived for many years, happily ever after. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly. I'm sure that that guy lived happily ever after until his wife poisoned him (laughs) in his sleep. Oh, man. And, like, what a ending line like oh if i hadn't bent the twig when it was green i wouldn't have gotten to the shape i was in it's like oh my gosh like his his manipulations of like murdering animals in front of her is what led her to be the most obedient it's like it's real simple all you got to do is traumatize them when you first meet them and they'll be so afraid you're gonna kill them they'll do whatever you say (laughs) i was gonna say like this guy has some really strong like bluebeard vibes for me, oh, yeah. and then it's so funny because I feel like his moral at the end of the story is somehow worse than Charles Peralt's like moral at the oh, end of yeah. Bluebeard, where they're like, women, yeah. don't be curious. But in this one, he's like, yeah, exactly what you said. If you traumatize him <laughs> early on, if you psychologically abuse him hard enough at the beginning, you don't have to do it later. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait, what? Yeah, it's so crazy because... How it's not, I mean, like I put my own like little sarcastic twist on this whole thing because I could not bring it (laughs) within my soul to tell it like straight as it is with any degree of seriousness. But it's like, how is that something that people were like, oh no, yeah, this is a story that we like and teaches good values to us and our children and (laughs) our society. Yeah, and I, I, 
realized when you said the name Gerda that I had not mentioned that this is a Danish. This is a Danish version. Uh, the land of Hamlet, of course. That of explains course. everything. So yeah, this is a, a recorded Danish fairy tale. Which, for the record, before we get any Danes writing in and oh, like, yeah. trying to give me crap, I am of Danish heritage, partially myself. So and I, yeah, I. It's I, fine. I stuck. I feel like I stuck that in a weird spot where we're like men abusing their wives. And I'm like, by the way, they're <laughs> Danish. <laughs> by the way, the Danes, they all about well, I'm that. like, as you can expect <laughs> from the Danes. Uh, no, I, I just wanted to point out like where the story was from. And then also like when it was from is uh, like, so this tale type is ATU 901, Taming of the Shrew. And so this was a folk tale that was going around contemporary to William Shakespeare. And so, yeah, like what you were saying, about like you were being kind of sarcastic in how you were saying stuff or pointing out. Yeah. Some of the issues with like what was going on, because the story itself doesn't, it just states it like perfectly normal, very acceptable. This all makes sense. Yeah. And it was like a, a different time. And yeah, these tales were told as a kind of like, Oh yeah, there's only one way to control your woman so they don't backtalk you or constantly contradict you or whatever. Yeah. The, the way to get an obedient wife is to psychologically torment them. Yeah, but as we pointed out before, and I think your Bluebeard comparison is kind of a good one too. It's like, I don't necessarily think that by any stretch, you know, in Charles Perrault's time that they're like, oh yeah, like murdering the women that choose to open your closet that you told them not to open is a good thing. You know, like they, yeah. even these stories are exaggerated yes. to teach a lesson that they really truly do probably believe, which is, you know, like, you know, if you want your wife to behave, you got to teach her early on, which again is not <laughs> the greatest message. Yeah. No, but as far as like, <laughs> it's also an exaggerated level of it in the story. Yeah, as far as like marriage advice goes, like even for that day, this wasn't supposed to be actual like marriage or wedding advice. It was supposed to be a story that yeah. was basically like, I mean, they were closer to meaning it than, you know, we are today. Yeah. But no, exactly what you're saying is that like this story was an exaggeration that like most people would have thought that, you know, that was crazy to be like shooting your dog and whatever. And an example of that, that like way of thinking uh-huh. is in Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, because in that story, when the groom is acting this way, when he kind of does all of these exact same things, The Taming of the Shrew leaves out the, the killing of a dog. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mention the killing of a horse, but it does mention the horse falling down the bride being forced to carry the saddle the rest of the way home. Yeah. But all the other behavior is very much like inside of William Shakespeare's play. And there are other characters who are watching this guy acting that way and remarking of like, he's a madman. He's a crazy person. Like they were like, the way he's acting is insane and over the top and like inappropriate. But one of the differences in how William Shakespeare twisted the tale is that he 
let the audience kind of in on the joke that this guy was just pretending to be that severe and out of control, Mm -hmm. but that he didn't plan on being that way the whole marriage. It was just a thing to kind of, once they got married, show her her place and Uh then be like, and now we can live pretty peacefully together because I showed her who's the boss. Again, I'm not saying that's a good message. (laughs) But slightly better. It's just, it's interesting the way that if you know this tale and now our audience does know this tale, if our audience goes and reads The Taming of the Shrew, there's more to get out of the play and looking at how William Shakespeare twisted that and added to the story to get across the point that he was trying to get across. One of the main differences is that there is kind of a subplot in William Shakespeare's play going on with the second sister. So there's no third sister Mm -hmm. in William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. There is a second sister who the father... Her name's Bianca, and the father is very much like, oh, she's so wonderful because she's always obedient to me. She's always like doing what I tell her to do, and she's the good one. And this one is garbage because she's so like outspoken and like in your face, very obvious with like what she's doing. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Bianca isn't well behaved. She just acts that way like in, in front, front of, of her, her father. father. Yeah. And so when Bianca hears her dad say to her suitors, oh, I'm not going to let her marry anybody. I'm not going to let her be with anybody until her sister gets married. She to her father is very much like, oh, yeah, dad, like I understand. And you're right. And you're very wise and you're very smart. But behind his back, she's mad and she's upset about it. And so when a man who's in love with her, it's actually two different men who are in love with her, disguise themselves and become her tutors. She knows who they are. It's only a disguise to her father. So there are these men who who want to be her lovers that sneak into their house in these disguises so that they can meet alone with Bianca. And she's very into that. And so it's like you have a dad who's saying like, oh, this eldest daughter that I have is the difficult one. She's the hard one. She's the problem. But then William Shakespeare added this subplot where there's this second sister, Bianca, who is like the father's kind of like model daughter who is going behind his back doing whatever she wants. Right. And then at the end of the play, when there is this um kind of test of obedience and by this point the eldest daughter has been you know psychologically tormented by her husband and is like you know super quick to obey when he asks her to come in the room and the other men are kind of like what our wives cuz the third wife in the story is one of the the guys ends up with Bianca. The other guy ends up being like, oh, I guess I'll have to find somebody else to marry. And so he finds a local widow because he's an older guy. He finds a local widow and she thinks she's better than, you know, the stuff that she's heard about the eldest daughter about like, oh, she's a very mouthy woman. 
But then when it comes time to do that like obedience test, Bianca doesn't run into the room and this widow doesn't run into the room, but uh, Katharina does run into the room. Uh, the eldest daughter. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of this thing of like, hey, you might think that you have an obedient wife or that, you know, you have control over these women, but a husband is being controlled even when his wife is nice to him. Right. That like there's there's levels of what would be considered as like disobedience or like obstinance or whatever. Some of it is saying with a smiling face, oh, I'll listen to you. And then going behind your back and doing another. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, well, which do you want? (laughs) Again, I'm not saying that the message is like progressive or that I agree with it, but I am saying it's interesting the way that William Shakespeare for his audience that probably knew the story. Yeah. That like same tale type of like the Tame of the Shrew. They went in to the play expecting probably one thing and then getting this kind of extra sub story plot that they weren't expecting, which is why people of that time loved William Shakespeare was because he was taking stuff that they were familiar with and then subverting their expectations or kind of changing up the story into something that, you know, they hadn't heard before, right. even though it was somewhat familiar. Yeah. And so it's like, that's just like part of his brilliance. Yeah. And it's funny too, because like, we see that now as much as like Shakespeare has been like embraced, like we learn about him in school reference all the time. Like there's a big trend of not only like his plays being turned into movies, but like, especially like nineties to two thousands, to today i'm sure next year there'll be a movie like this but like they get turned into like these like teenage romantic comedy movies like in this case 10 things i hate about you which i actually love that movie and it does the same thing that shakespeare did to this original tale in that it says like okay like let's subvert some of the message because that's a little crazy and that's not in keeping with like our values let's change it to what we like about it or what we think we could do if it were set in our day with our Values And it's kind of similar in, you know, 10 things I hate about you. Not to say that there's not things in there that are still like really weird and kind of gross as far as the way that people interact with each other. But, you know, it's a lot closer to the way that we the values that we have in our society today than, you know, William Shakespeare's time and the way that it came across when he did his version of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned like 10 things I hate about you. And one thing that I felt like I. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but as I was reading The Taming of the Shrew, I was remembering a lot of like 10 Things I Hate About You. And one thing that I love that they did in 10 Things I Hate About You is they made it a little bit more obvious that the dad was kind of picking fit. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. clueless. He had picked which kid he definitely thought was like his favorite because it was the one who was just agree with him that was making his life easy. Yeah. And like, in his cluelessness, it made it a lot more obvious that, like, the eldest daughter's problem wasn't necessarily her personality as much as it was, uh, like, her dad not appreciating, like, kind of, like, the gifts that she had. Yeah. Like, what she brought to the table yeah. as, like, a human being. Yeah. Because I feel like it's there in William Shakespeare's version that like part of the problem is that the dad loves the younger daughter so much 
And then it's just so done with the eldest daughter. And right. he perceives that she's trash. And so he's telling everybody she's trash. And then she, when she gets angry about being treated and called trash, they're like, oh, look what an emotional woman you are. So scary <laughs> for us personally. And I'm oh like, my gosh. guys, come on. Like you're being horrible and then being shocked when like. Someone doesn't react well to it. When somebody doesn't like being called like awful and a shrew and whatever. Yeah, that's what I liked about the 10 Things I Hate About You as well. It's like, like you said, it's like she's a great person. Like if you look at her from kind of our current cultural values, like she's a type of person that we would look up to and value the type of character traits that she has in that she's like independent. She's smart. She doesn't care what people think. And there are people that are rankled by that. But she's kind of like... Not bothered because she's happy to be her own person, you know? Yeah. And it's just not that it's not a struggle for her because she's a high schooler. Everything's a struggle for everyone in high school. But yeah, I mean, I just really like that about it. Like that aspect of it, focusing so much more on her. Like she really is the main character and she is the one that kind of has, you know, agency and makes choices and does things. Yeah. More so than in the others where it's like things just are happening to her because of the whims of her father or whatever suitors come along that want to marry her. Yeah. That is one thing that's a lot more modern about like 10 things I hate about you because it is, you know, in the taming of the shrew, it is a lot more about because she is so like blatantly rebellious. She can't be sneaky and get away with stuff. And so she ends up having to marry the man that her father just picks for her. And that guy picks her in the play because he, I mean, he explicitly comes to town and is like, I'm just looking for someone to marry for money. Uh Do you guys know anybody who has money? And the people who are trying to get her married off so then they could possibly marry Bianca. Right. They're like, oh yeah, we know of a woman who comes with a bunch of money but she's not for you, man. She's <laughs> awful. And so, you know, he's like, nope, for me, the money's worth it because I know exactly how to get this woman to behave. Yeah. Psychological abuse. And so this woman, everything is happening to her because she has been so outright rebellious that people are like, oh, now we have to actually like do something to control this woman. And so, All this stuff is forced on her and, you know, it's not a great kind of ending for her. Meanwhile, Bianca has been able to, in the background, trick her father into letting her marry the man that she falls in love with, that she likes the most. Mm -hmm. And they're able to, you know, do all this underground tricking and trading or whatever until their dad, like, agrees to... Uh, her marrying this guy. And then so she gets to be with who she wants. And then, yeah, when the obedience test happens at the end, she's like, no, buddy, I'm not going to drop what I'm doing to come and be in the room when you call me. I'm not going to be a wife like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just really, really interesting how in 10 Things I Hate About You, they have it so that the woman who is kind of opinionated, she is more in control of her life. Yeah, because that to our modern sensibilities is a little more 
tolerable. Yeah. And that's what I love about these like folk tales, fairy tales, that because they belong to the people generally, that's kind of how they come into being. I mean, obviously William yeah. Shakespeare did his version of it and that's like William Shakespeare's version, but then that's so old now that it's like, you know, kind of belongs to us all culturally. Yeah. And it's it's just there's no correct version to go back to. The correct version is the one that you're telling that resonates with you, that resonates with your values and your place in, you know, history yeah. and culture and whatever at the moment that you're telling the story. And I think that's really cool. And again, you know, like I had thing I hate about you is a an example of it. William Shakespeare's play is an example of it. And even the original story is an example of that happening. And it's just cool to have these things and to see the progression through different time periods as a way yeah. to look at the similarities and differences and be able to tell something about the society that was telling these stories and how it differs from the past or cultures in a different part of the world or whatever. It's kind of an interesting barometer that each place and each time's version says something very specific about that place and that time. Yeah. I thought it was really beautiful what you said earlier about how like basically William Shakespeare took the story that you retold. He took that and he used it to weave it in with some other stuff to create, you know, the art that he was making. And then it's amazing to see then based on now that people are more familiar with William Shakespeare, then another person could take that and change it around, knowing that people could be a little bit familiar with the Shakespeare version being, you know, shaken up and and retold and sending a different message. And all dependent on something that you were bringing up at the beginning, which is people being familiar with the work that it is a derivative of. And you don't necessarily have to be familiar with those other works to understand the current work. Like you can watch a Shakespeare production of Taming of the Shrew and still get the story and still understand it without knowing that it's based on this older folktale because that's exactly yeah. how it's been for me for all the years of my life until today when I realized it was based off of something else. And the same yeah. thing about, again, we keep bringing it up, but 10 Things I Hate About You. It's like, you can watch that movie not knowing it's based on Shakespeare and still enjoy it. But when you do know those stories that came before that it's playing off of, it just makes that experience all the more rich and all the more interesting. Yeah. So now going back to the possible frame story yes. that William Shakespeare included of Christopher Sly. That's the name of his drunkard <laughs> is Christopher Sly. Great name. Awesome name. So there's only one part after, you know, the play starts where we kind of get an idea of like this guy still being in the audience, but just once. Uh -huh. So after act one, scene one, you never hear about Christopher Sly again. You have the induction because they're like, it's not really, it's not the introduction. It's not a prologue. It's not act one. So they're like, it's induction scenes one and two. And then the only other time you hear of that kind of plot going on is when a servant comes and is like 
just asking Christopher Sly what he thinks about the play. And Sly is like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really impressive. Is it over? And they're like, no, it just started. And he's like, oh, (laughs) I wish that that was all that there was. Uh, (laughs) And so he's like not enjoying himself, you know, watching this play or at least like watching the first scene of the play. And then we never see him again. So a lot of times when uh, a lot of times when this play is being put on, they cut out that whole Christopher Sly part. Mm-hmm. But I want to look at kind of just talking briefly about what we know about the end and if we think it would change the end. So the audience presumably came into the play, recognized this story of like Lord for a day, and they know that it's going to end with him basically waking up the next day drunk on the side of the road again. Have being like really confused mm-hmm. and then possibly, you know, being told, oh, you're really amusing here. I'm going to make your life better. So my question is, like, now that we kind of know what the end of Lord for a Day is, do you think William Shakespeare meant to leave it off? What could he have possibly done if he added it to the end, that would have made it make any sense to put it at the beginning. Yeah. I don't understand why he included it at all, except for maybe to be this whole thing of like starting it off with a story that is very familiar to people that people would know like, Oh, this is like a really common story. And then again, putting a twist on that by having like the main story actually have nothing to do with it, but also be a story that, the people would be familiar with, but kind of then expecting like that there would be a twist on that as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think the purpose was accomplished by setting it up that way. I don't think you really gain much of anything by continuing out the story afterwards where it's like, Oh, like he did this. And then now he was played along so well with our prank by watching a play that he was bored by that. We're going to reward him by making him like, part of our court or whatever. It's like, that doesn't really do anything. I don't think, but maybe, you know, like if there is an ending that was left off, there could have been something that he could have done to subvert it in the same way that he subverted the story of, you know, the obedient wives or whatever, you know, by adding his own twist on it. But it's like, I can't imagine that it would have been all that much. Yeah. So, cause like, I can't think it, It's weird to me that he started something and then didn't finish it. Like he started to make a point and then purposefully didn't. That doesn't make sense to like me personally. Yeah. So some ideas from scholars, just so that, you know, people aren't listening to to non-Shakespeare scholars (laughs) trying, trying to solve all the mysteries of William Shakespeare. Yeah, I know nothing about Shakespeare. So one of the ideas is that Christopher Sly is providing kind of a satirical model of Shakespeare's audience, he, especially the part where he, you know, is starting to nod off in the middle of the play. And then he's and is even saying, like, it's not very good. I don't want to be here. You know, they're like, oh, maybe he's making fun of like some of the patrons that he has, which I kind of like a little bit that idea that he's calling his 
audience kind of like degenerate drunks that have just uh-huh. been drug off the street to fall asleep <laughs> like during his plays. Yeah. Because I'm like, that's hilarious if he's like, oh yeah, the way some of you behave in a theater is it's it's as if they took drunkards off the street <laughs> and just put them in fancy clothes yeah. and tried to show them some culture and they didn't appreciate it. That's, that's pretty what funny. it feels like. I like that. Yeah, I'm like, I like that just because it's, yeah, like making fun of, you know, his own audience. So because... This the staging includes the idea that Christopher Sly and his group are always on stage throughout the entire play. Uh-huh. They're basically like like front row to the side. Yeah. But like on the stage. Yeah. Watching the play happen. And so some people have suggested that maybe he was placed there so that the audience members would not forget that what they were watching was a play and not not something true to life. Like it almost was like he didn't want them to go all the way in. Yeah. With suspending their disbelief. Right. Like he wanted them to be able to keep like some distance and maybe like a bit of like a critical eye or something. Yeah. That it's like, oh, this is an allegory or this is a Almost like holding a mirror up to society, but also being like, this is a funhouse mirror. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Because especially if you think about like other stuff, it'd be interesting to know, because I don't off the top of my head, kind of what productions were written and performed like to either side of this, like maybe coming off of one of like his history plays, people like, oh, let's go see the latest Billy Shakespeare play. And they'd just seen like Julius Caesar, where it's like, uh historical thing you know like you'd want to be like really clear like hey this is not like that this isn't a real thing this is pretend like let's just enjoy it or even a thing that's like because we've talked about before on the podcast how a lot of people especially scholars saw folk tales at the time as like trash yeah as like like brain garbage fit only for the lower classes. Uh-huh. And he was kind of zhuzhing this story up. Like right. he was making it like nicer, prettier, like something a little more like profound in the message. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it's almost like he wanted to be like, oh, look, here is an audience watching this as art. Right. And, and you're, in the audience watching another person watching the fairy tale be presented as culture. Yeah. So like there are lots of ideas of like how William Shakespeare could have truly meant to leave the story of Christopher Sly unknown, like unfinished. And that that was, I think you'd said this earlier, that that in itself subverts the expectation because he didn't wrap it up. But there's there's a line in the play right at the beginning that makes me wonder if he meant to tie something in at the end. And it is when they, the Lord takes his page, who's like a younger male, and makes him dress up as a woman to pretend to be Christopher Sly's wife, uh-huh. who's been 
worried about him this whole time. <laughs> because the story they told Christopher Sly was like, oh, you've been you've been delirious, almost like mad for the last 15 years. We've been so worried about you. And so they dress up this page as if it's a woman. And Sly says, are you my wife and will not call me husband? My men should call me Lord. I am your good man. And then the page says, my husband and my Lord, my Lord and husband, I am your wife in all obedience. Mm. And like just that line in itself where, you know, this person is pretending to be a woman and then, you know, is kind of given this this lecture of like, oh, you you should, you know, behave the way I want. And this kid's like, yes, women should be always obedient. <laughs> and like that line, I don't know, maybe it's me reading like a whole lot like into that like one line. But it makes me wonder if there was supposed to be, you know, this kind of like end cap. Yeah, like a payoff um, at the end yeah. relating to wives. Like she turns out because she's not actually the guy's wife to not be obedient at yeah. all because he's just pretending and it's all been a joke that they've been pranking him. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. And like, that's kind of what I I wish that there was just like something at the end that kind of helps make sense of especially like the ending that there is in the Shakespeare play, The Taming of the Shrew, when it's just this like the main woman, Kate, when she kind of gives this speech about, oh, yes, we should always be very, very obedient to our husbands, always in all things. And then like the play ends and I'm like, oh, I feel like it's missing like yeah. some kind of like really good actual like true ending. Right. If the guy like then turns to this page pretending to be his wife and is like, oh, did you hear that, honey? Like you're supposed to be obedient to me. And he like whips off the wig and is like, I'm not your wife, you big oaf. And you're not a lord. Blah, 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 blah. And then like yeah, storms yeah. off. Or, or it's like, something. oh, if, yeah, yeah, like, oh, if you're willing to believe that that could happen, then blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Like, just some kind of, like, uh, a payoff of, like, the beginning of the Lord for a Day story. Somehow, you know, surrounding the tale of the Taming of the Shrew with, like, the the real moral of the tale. Or at least a real like solid stated moral from William Shakespeare. That's what I would love for this. Yeah. But yet it does not exist. In Shakespeare and the Folktale, an anthology of stories that was edited by Charlotte Artees, she says, what can folktales teach us about Shakespeare? They might help us understand why Shakespeare's plays have been so successful across time and space. They also may help us imagine what Shakespeare's audience might have brought with them into the theater, whether they were standing on the ground or seated in a privileged position on the stage, since folktales could have been available to those at a range of literacy levels. Shakespeare's folktale sources can reveal to us how he met his audience on common ground and how he kept them there. And I really, really love that message just because obviously I'm obsessed with folktales. And so 
it totally goes with, you know, my own thesis about how important like folk tales and knowledge about folk tales are. Um, but it really does speak to how, you know, folk tales provide this like rich cultural storytelling that binds people together and then helps to create jumping off points for other creative endeavors, for passing on messages that can be even more subtle when you know your audience knows the stories that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're able to subvert expectations and also sneak in whatever messages that you kind of want to get in there about what's happening in the culture in that day. And so I loved the chance to get to examine how folk tales have helped shape a writer, a playwright that, you know, people still study deeply and look to as a source of culture today. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar But there's just one section that I will flip to eventually, and then I'll start saying words that matter. Words that are important to the podcast, not just filler words.